Well, good morning, Redemption Church. It is always great to be with you, and especially at this time of year. Now, uh, maybe you're new to Redemption or new to watching online this particular church, and you're like, why are they doing all this Christmas stuff so early? It's like, is this like Walmart now where we're putting out the decorations for Christmas like at, I don't know, the 4th of July? Like, why does the church do it so early? Well, for us, uh, every once in a while, we love to celebrate the season that we call Advent, which is a celebration or more, maybe better put, a reflection on not just the story of Christmas and the birth of Christ, but it's a story or a reflection on the entire narrative of God. So from the beginning of all things up to the birth of Christ, all the way through to what we long for in the future, that's really all of what this season's about. And so we as a church like to take the four Sundays of Advent to reflect on that story. And to see God's movement and God's action in the world in such a way that it inspires us to then live up to and live out the qualities that we look at during the Advent season. So for example, last week we looked at peace and how God came to instill peace so that from that we can then be demonstrators of our peace in the world in such a way that others go, man, I want the peace that you have. See, that's kind of the heart. And today we're looking at hope. And how God came into the world in the person of Christ to deposit a hope into the world from outside of the world that we so desperately needed. That is what we want to reflect on today. Now, one of the things I shared last week about this particular season and what I hope to do on Sunday mornings is for us to just kind of have this moment of, of pause, getting out of all of the busyness of the season so we can have just this, this centering effect where we are able to focus more on God and, and then in that hopefully grow deeper uh, in our relationship and walk with Him. And so what I want to do right now as we get ready to go into just a short little talk on hope today is I want to create some space for all of us for that moment of reflection where you can just kind of ponder, pause, maybe silently pray to yourself. I'll give us a moment for that, and then I'm going to go ahead and pray. But again, the heart behind all of this is to have a sense of connectedness to God and all of the craziness of life, and to have every Sunday of Advent just be that moment of just take a breath, soak in some of the peace and hope and joy and love of God in this season. So let's go ahead and just take a moment together, and then I will pray, and we'll get underway. Jesus, if there's anything I know, is that we are a needy people. We are needy in so many ways. Some seasons of life are great and easy and simple, and these themes of Advent, we just feel like, man, we're dancing in those. But there's other times in life where we feel peace is elusive, hope is gone, joy is absent, love feels cold, and that's in those spaces especially where we need to sense your presence among us. So wherever we may be at as individuals in this room today or watching online, I pray that you meet us in our space. If life is great, I pray that we sense your presence with power. If life is hard, I pray we sense your presence with power because we know that where you are present, there is security in those spaces. And so we look to you this morning. We reflect on your story this morning. And I pray from that, we live out the traits of your story. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the fact that your, 
your, your narrative kind of weaves through all of the, the wildness and craziness of life to show just how desperately you care for us. And so for that, we praise you and we thank you in your good and perfect name. Amen. So Advent, Advent is this word that simply means arrival or coming or inbreaking. That's the spirit. And with each of the words of Advent, what we're thinking about is not simply the arrival of Jesus in the world on that very first Christmas, but how as he came into the world, he brought these characteristics with him for us. When he came into the world, he came as the Prince of Peace to give us peace internally so that we could then live out that peace externally to our world. And so we looked at peace last week. But today, it's all about hope. And if there's anything the world needs, it's hope. If there's anything that we long for as human beings, it is that spirit, that sense, that essence of hope. And when I think about the Christmas story, for me at least, I go, that is a story not simply of Jesus coming into the world, but he comes into the world and he brings with him this thing that we so desperately need. We need hope. And when we go to that very first Christmas 2,000 years ago, hope was desperately needed because the world was a broken place. It was a world lost in darkness. It was a painful time for the human race, and it had been painful for thousands of years. Now, it's kind of weird for us, I think, to think back on that first Christmas, because for us, we've probably all been putting up our trees and the lights, and we're shopping for presents, and we sort of engineer Christmas to be this very ideal season for us. Right, so it's family and friends and fun and it's presents and ribbons and trees and lights and it's merry and it's bright and we, we love all those elements, right? Because we have a level of affluence and safety and security in our world and our culture that allows us to have this really kind of picturesque Christmas. But when we go back to the first Christmas, it was anything but what we put together in our own lives today. That first Christmas was one that was riddled with a story behind it of pain, of hardship, of anguish, of failure, and shame, and ruin, and ultimately death. So while we put together Hallmark Christmases and snow globes to represent this, the first Christmas looked nothing at all like any of those things. Now some are sitting there going, great, Matt's already wrecking Christmas, the second Sunday of Advent. Well, I don't want to wreck Christmas. What I want to do is put it in perspective because that whole story and the story that leads up to this arrival of Christ, like I said, is a story that is riddled with hate and pain and suffering. And I think sometimes you have to see those things to then appreciate what the themes of Advent are. It's really only against the backdrop of hatred can you understand peace. It's only against the backdrop of despair can we then understand hope. Of, of, of sadness can we understand joy, and of destruction can we understand love. So we have to juxtapose all these things so that we better can wrestle with the beauty of the words that represent the different Sundays of this season. Because when I think about the human race leading up to that birth of Christ, I, I think at its core, it was eager for a change, right? Massively so. But the problem that we all had as human beings is while we were eager for a change, we were not eager to be changed necessarily. 
We wanted to stay in our own patterns, our own rhythms, do our own thing, go our own way. And then we wanted the world to just kind of materialize in such a way that it would just be positive for us. But the problem is, if we don't want to change, there's not going to be change. And so we were in a plight. Our sin was invasive. It took us down paths that were destructive. And yet what we see in the story is the God of all grace whose grace was so great, he said, I will step into the condition, I will change the condition, and I will change persons in those plights and situations so as to bring change to the world. That is the heart of the Christmas season. That is the essence of Advent. And to me, that is the essence of hope, right? That God loved us so much. He was willing to do for us what we were unable to do for ourselves and frankly, not even eager to have done at the level that he wanted to do. But he's like, no, I know better than you. And I'm gonna do a beautiful thing in your midst. And so to unpack this idea today of hope, I wanna start in a very unique place. I, I wanna grab your, your attention for a minute with asking a question. And the question is, I want you to think through as best as you can recall all of human history, which is just a small sliver of time, right? I want you to think through the most hopeless time you could imagine that the human race has ever seen before. The most hopeless season. Now, maybe in your own life you have those, but no, I'm going bigger. Just from the, the whole template of human history, what was the most hopeless time? Was it when Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden and driven to the east? Or was it when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and there was no sense of getting out of that plight? Was it the countless wars and genocides and atrocities throughout human history? If you're a Broncos fan, is it the current season? Is that your most hopeless? You know, I, what was the most hopeless season? Well, to understand this a little bit, or at least as I understand it, we need to drop back pretty deep into the timeline. We need to go roughly about 6,050 years. If we go that far back, right, uh, just a little past 4,000 BC, uh, we begin to see the most hopeless time in history. In fact, it's on the very first page of your Bible. That is the most hopeless season. Now, some of you may be going, wait, dude, I've been to Sunday school. The very first page is like the only good season. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that's before the problems. How can you say that's the most hopeless time? Here's why. Before Adam and Eve went off the rails, before the whole fall of humanity and everything else, that world was hopeless because that world had no need for hope. It didn't need hope. It didn't need those things. In fact, one of the things we sometimes forget is that the virtues that we most appreciate are virtues that we appreciate because they have an antithesis. They have a negative to the positive. So we love forgiveness. Why? Because we know what offense looks like. We love grace. Why? Because we know what sin and failure looks like. See, the thing about this is like all of these words have meaning because there's this, this, this dark side that we need a positive side. There's a bad news for which we need good news. But in Eden, it didn't understand grace because there wasn't sin. It didn't understand hope because there wasn't real hopelessness at that point. It was just neutral, neutral positive. So Adam and Eve, every day their, their itinerary was the same, right? Wake up, 
Skip getting dressed because it's okay to be naked, right? Go outside, play with some bunnies, eat some fruit, enjoy the sun, do some work, and everything's working for you. And so they didn't wake up on Monday and do all of that and then go to bed on Monday night and say, like, we hope that Tuesday is just as good. No, they knew Tuesday was going to be good. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. So it was a hopeless environment. Beautifully, encouragingly balanced. But then problems emerged. By Genesis chapter 3, their, their hardship-free lives became riddled with pain and suffering and shame and hardship. Hopeless bliss became hopeless mess. Blessing turned to cursing. Freedom became bondage. And their contentment became despair. We see in the story where it says their eyes were opened to their sinful problem. And from that, their hearts, they were darkened. And all of that simplicity now became problem for them. And with that, they had hopelessness. Imagine experiencing that emotion for the first time, right? As their eyes are open and they see everything and they're confronted by God. I mean, it would have been wild to their senses. And so they began to chase. As a race, we began to chase. As soon as we lost the bliss of Eden and we sensed hopelessness in our lives, we're like, how do we get it back? How do we re-emerge into a more secured environment? We long for that. So we started setting up things to try to re-engineer the sense of what was lost and to hopefully have hope in this world. So one of the things we began to look toward was this concept called idols. And we thought idols will be the thing that will give me hope again or give me hope in a new way, a lasting true hope. And so we started trusting in persons or places or things or ideas. And those things we thought, man, if we can just get there, it's going to secure us. It's going to give us the sense of contentment we've always longed for and wanted. So we started to set up idols, but they didn't pay off and they didn't give us lasting hope. Now, if it wasn't idols, maybe it was certain ideals, and so it's like, if we can just get this in place, if we can just have this leader, this economy, this whatever, these ideas will be the thing that gives us real hope in the end. But those things didn't last as well. Or even what we began to do is say, you know what, I know what we need to do. In Eden, it was bliss. There was a garden, but there was a garden that had a God, and I would rather have a garden without a God, a garden of my own making. So we began to engineer ways that we could build our own little greenhouses to create our own little gardens, not of Eden, but the Garden of Medan, where I just set up the rules. And if I can just get the world to play by my rules, I will be content. I will be at peace. But the problem was none of these ideas work for us as human beings. None of them last. In fact, if anything, what I've learned is it just puts us on a treadmill of chasing hopeless hope, right? We want it different, but it never seems to come through. It never seems to last for any length of time. I think it's interesting because there was this guy in the Old Testament period named Solomon, wise individual, he had everything. But a dude that had everything tried everything to give himself hope and peace and security. And in the end, it says it doesn't work. So he writes this entire piece of literature. We call it Ecclesiastes. And he tells us, you know what? Life just has a sense of vanity behind it. It has a sense of meaningless behind it when you're wanting the world to deliver you from the problems. Because it doesn't have the bandwidth to do it. 
our world is ill-equipped for the securities and the peace that we seek. It's ill-equipped to really give us lasting hope. And there's a reason for this. In fact, when we kind of pivot to the New Testament, we see Paul writes this short letter to a group of Christians in a city called Ephesus. And he's writing to these new followers of Jesus, but he's writing at this point about their old way of life, their old lostness, their old problems. And and he's kind of writing in a particular context. There's a problem that's emerged. There's a lot of division between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. And he's trying to get them to think in terms of being one. And so he's writing all of this in chapter 2. But he's going to say something at the end of what I read here that's going to give us some direction when it comes to why the world doesn't generate hope. We have to find hope elsewhere. He says to these Christians, he says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. He's like, so you, you weren't on team God, right? Not the true God that there is. But what he says is the real kernel of what their challenge had been is he says they were having no hope or they had no hope and they were without God in the world. Now, I just want to highlight that last part because I think it's really, really valuable for us to understand this dynamic we're talking about. We long for hope, but there's a sense of hopelessness. The world can't do it. Why can't the world accomplish what we most seek? Well, Paul is telling us right here because there is a union between hope and God or a union between hopelessness and no God. So what he's getting at here is where there is God, there is hope. And where there is no God, there is no hope. And so now we as people look at the world and say, but can't the world create hope? Can a certain personality or politician or promise create hope in the world? And the answer is no. Why? Because only God is the source of hope. Lasting, true, eternal hope. So where there's God, there's hope. But there's no God, there is no hope. Now, here's where this gets a little interesting for me this morning. Um, this sense of discontentment that we struggle with as a race, um, God sort of engineered that. Or, or maybe to put it a little bit different, uh, God instilled into the framework of our reality this sense of incompleteness in hope so that we would go, oh, it doesn't work. I need something greater. And he's like, right, so come to me as the source of your hope. We sense hopelessness to drive us to a greater, more deep longing for the thing that we most want, to himself as the true hope. Maybe that's the theme I want to really drive home this morning. It's that that thing, that angst, that incompleteness that we sense is what's meant to bring us to God who says, now I can give you what you most long for. So I want to start this looking at this really cryptic statement of Paul in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about what happened in Eden in Genesis 3 when everything fell apart, right? And he says the creation at that point, as God tells Adam, all of the ground is cursed because of you. That's the same scene here in Romans 8. He says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So this is a weird statement. Like, you take it on its own, you don't know what to do with it. But here's what Paul's trying to get at, right? As soon as Adam did what he did, and Eve did what she did, and everything comes off the rails, God's like, okay, I'm going to take creation, and I'm going to subject it to futility, which is a drag, but that's now what we all live in. We live in this kind of futilized kind of world. 
But he says, I didn't do it to be punitive. I didn't do it to just wreck the creation. The creation wasn't even wanting this, but I did it because there's a hope that underlies it. There's something that can draw out a deeper hope in the midst of that. So we all live this Ecclesiastes life now where it doesn't fulfill, it's kind of meaningless, nothing can secure us, but for the purpose of driving us to the only one who can do anything. And that's what I love about this whole thing. Because as I keep trying to say, this world cannot sustain lasting hope. We need something from the outside of this world to step in and to give us what we need. And that's what God longs to do. That's what God seeks to do in the story. And so the cycles of hopelessness, unmet expectation, despair, they're actually the graces of God. To, to kind of wear us out on all of the silly things that we pursue. So we actually then pursue the one thing that can change everything. And so I want to go back to the story in Genesis. Go back to Eden. They've just rebelled, right? They wanted to be like God, and now they have unmet hope, lots of despair, a life of futility. And yet in the midst of that scene in Genesis 3, we see the story of hope begin to emerge. A story of hope that's going to continue then throughout the rest of the Old Testament up to that first Christmas. And so, they've sinned. God said to the woman, you're going to fight with your husband, you're going to fight with your kids. And, and, and he's saying to the man, you're going to fight with the earth, and you're going to fight with your wife, and you're going to fight with your kids, and you're going to fight with everything. It's all going to come off the rails. But in the midst of that, he deposits the first good news, or the first gospel. This is when he's actually chastising the serpent that's created the problems. And he tells the serpent this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is a weird cryptic-y thing. But in there, we're really being told, hey, this is how God is going to fix it. No sooner do you break it that he steps in in his grace and he says, okay, I've got a plan to fix this. And I want you to notice three really critical things here because we're going to track this out through the rest of the Old Testament super fast, right? I want you to notice three words. Her, offspring, and he. In other words, God says, one day there will be a woman who will have an offspring that will be a boy. And this girl that has an offspring that brings forth a boy is going to go to war against this serpent. And while the serpent is going to strike his heel and wound him in some way, this boy will crush the head of the serpent underfoot. So you get this kind of mythic, cryptic, ah, here's a plan, I don't know what it means, but we start to put the pieces together knowing the other side of the story, and we're like, oh, I think I know what this is about. There will be a virgin, there will be a son, he will undo the damage of the enemy. That is the hope embedded into the beginning of the story, an offspring. And that word offspring becomes very critical as we track through the rest of the Bible. And it's a word of hope. And again, hope would be needed. It'd be needed because no sooner are Adam and Eve expelled from Eden that the world just gets dark quick, gets hopeless fast. 
they have two sons, and one son kills the other son. That's the beginning of Genesis 4. By the end of Genesis 4, you've got strangers killing one another. You get to Genesis 6, the whole world is wicked and evil and just tiresome all the time. Then you get to Genesis 10 and 11, and the nations have been created, and they go to war with one another, and they resist one another and hate one another, and that's the world we know. Hopeless. But then you get to Genesis chapter 12. And God starts to rekindle the story of hope again. And God comes to the most unlikely of persons. He finds this elderly couple who are actually pagans at the time. They worship other gods we see in the Bible. And so they are their own set of problems. But God comes to this couple and says, I'm going to use you to bless the nations. I'm going to use you to ignite the hope that the race so desperately needs. And so he comes to Abram and Sarai. Eventually their name changed to Abraham and Sarah. And he says, I'm going to produce through you an offspring. An offspring who will literally bless the nations. And eventually at a due season, when they're like 99 and 100, they have a son. Their only son. It's so impressive and so bizarre. And I think about that as being a grandfather, hanging out with my grandkids. In my 50s, it wears me out. I can't imagine being 99 and 100 with a little one. But they're in that space. And then this little one grows up into a young man. And then God comes to Abraham and he says, okay, this one and only son of yours, this offspring of promise to bless the nations, I want you to sacrifice him for me. Which is super weird. But... Abraham goes with the story. And he takes the young man onto a mountainside, and up there he builds an altar, and he lays a son on the altar, and he raises the knife to take the life of a son. And as he's doing this, suddenly God calls out, and he says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham's like, yes, it is me, Lord. I am here. And he says, do not lay a hand on the boy and do not hurt him in any way, for I know that you truly fear God, for you have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. So I want you to keep in mind kind of the archetype here. It's an offspring who is an only son, an only begotten son, right? Now I read this story and I wonder, why did Abraham go all in on this, right? Why didn't he kind of push back and say, God, I don't know if this is right, whatever else. Well, we see in Romans 4, we're given an insight into his thinking. It says, in hope, he believed against hope, which is a really interesting statement. In hope, he believed against hope. He pushed past even a sense of hopelessness. He had this greater hope in something. And what was this hope that he had? That he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So again, I just want us to be tracking this word. In Genesis 3, there will be an offspring that undoes the damage. Now God comes to Abraham. I'm going to give you an offspring. It's going to bless the nations, undo the damage. Now, going back to Genesis 22, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed the voice of God. So Eve's offspring, now Abraham's offspring. Man, this is going to be the formula that makes the difference. Now we fast forward in the story 1,500 years. That's another bleak and dark time for the nation of Israel. They're on the precipice of defeat. And the prophet Isaiah is writing. And he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And so the offspring of the virgin's womb is going to change the world. It's going to bring forth the promise to Abraham, the promise given to Eve and Adam way back in Eden. It's all unfolding. Then we fast forward another 700 years, another waypoint. And this one is the one we know. It's a young carpenter in kind of a divey town, engaged to a teenage girl. And she comes to him one day and says, I'm pregnant, and yet I'm still a virgin. And I'm sure Joseph's like, right, because that happens all the time. But he's a good guy and a loving guy and a nice guy. He can't marry her at this point. He knows he cannot continue in this relationship, but it says he's going to put her away privately and secretly because he doesn't want to shame her any more than she's already shamed. But he's not going to go through with it because this is all crazy. God doesn't just produce children in the womb. But then Joseph goes to sleep one night, and he has a dream. And in the dream, this angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if we just kind of go back to the beginning of our story, we see the waypoints. God promised them in the garden. Eve will be a a bearer of an offspring that undoes the damage. And then Abraham and his wife are going to be the bearers of an offspring that undoes the damage. And now we have Mary and Joseph, and they're about to have this offspring to bear forth the son that will undo the damage. God has always been telling his story. And he's given us these buzzwords, so we see that is the unfolding story, and that is our hope. In fact, Paul does us a huge favor in Galatians chapter 3. He just connects all the dots for us. He says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Go back to Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That promise in Genesis is about Mary who's having an offspring that comes from the line of Abraham, who is in fact Christ himself. See, God subjected the world to futility in hope. That we would hope for, long for, crave the one offspring who can change everything, and that one offspring is Christ. Christ for us, Christ among us, Christ to us, so he could do in us a certain work, a new change, a fresh way of life in him, so we can then be ambassadors of hope to others. I close with Paul's words in Romans chapter 15. It says again, Isaiah says this, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will place their hope. 
This is an image of Christ, a picture of Jesus coming into the world. He says, from this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. If right now you would just bow your heads, kind of close your eyes. I want to encourage us as I was thinking through this particular Sunday of Advent, and I was thinking through all of the things that I tend to hope in sometimes, it reminded me of how, how futile it is, the things that I sometimes hope in, that I want real change to come from. And it just reminds me, man, where there is God, there is hope. Tomorrow may be terrible, but if God's there, there is hope. Tomorrow might be great, but if God's there, there's still hope. It doesn't matter. But my hope isn't God. My hope isn't in the conditions changing. It's in my God who provides, my God who, who satisfies, my God who anchors. Now, I don't know what's going on in your world on this particular Advent Sunday. Maybe things are sailing, but you know what? Things at some point come apart again. And that's where we want to be drawn to the God of hope. Now, maybe for some of you in this room or watching, you're like, man, I don't even follow this God, but you want to follow this God and you want that to be your true lasting hope. Man, for you, that's a prayer away. I say that every Sunday. It's a prayer away for you where you just go, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me for my sin. Renew me, restore me, and may my hope not be in all the things that will at some point fail me, but may my hope be in you that is enduring and lasting because you came into the world to give us this thing that we so desperately needed and that I so desperately need at times. If you make that your prayer and your way, he hears you, he brings you in, and he begins to work in you so that things like peace and hope and joy and love are deep and lasting and eternal. Now, if you make that your prayer today, we want to know. We have an app in our tile you can go to and say, I made that decision. We want to know about that. Maybe if you're in this room or watching today and you're like, I'm just struggling with a sense of hope right now. I just want to pray for you then. Pray for all of us that we would have a centering when it comes to hope. Jesus, I thank you for your good faithfulness. I thank you for the fact that where you are, there is hope. I thank you that you've been telling your story for thousands of years, that you've been bringing this drama in an unfolding way to bring forth what we, we long for, what we do need every day. And so may you be our grace, our guide, and our hope. We seek you in your name.